It's Thursday, July 23rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The U.S. has agreed to pay Pfizer and BioNTech nearly $2 billion to secure 100 million doses of their experimental coronavirus vaccine. It still needs to go through phase three trials and be approved by the FDA, but the race is on to secure as many doses as possible. Operation Warp Speed has struck similar deals with other vaccine developers as well. Jared Hopkins, pharma reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for all the money being poured into vaccines. Next, Congress continues to debate what to do about enhanced jobless benefits that are set to expire at the end of next week. Some 25 million Americans are set to lose an extra $600 a week that were given out to help keep people afloat during the pandemic shutdowns. Eric Marath, labor, economics, and policy reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, the culture war over wearing face masks continue, and in California, the city of Huntington Beach has become the symbol of mask resistance. Despite evidence that face coverings help limit the spread of coronavirus, some residents think the virus is overhyped, others are just fed up with constantly changing restrictions. Jake Sheridan, reporter at the LA Times, joins us for why face masks continue to be a point of contention. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. My administration reached a historic agreement with Pfizer to produce and deliver 100 million doses of their vaccine immediately following its approval. Joining us now is Jared Hopkins, pharma reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Jared. Thanks for having me. We're getting a lot of news, actually, about vaccines this past week. And steadily, over the past few weeks, we're getting into phase three trials in many cases. A lot of good news has been coming out. But I wanted to talk about the money associated with these vaccines the U.S. government is pouring billions of dollars into various companies and vaccine candidates to secure a bunch of doses. This is obviously pending them completing their phase three trials and actually getting approved. They just want to have the doses ready to supply to Americans. And in the latest news, we have a nearly $2 billion agreement between Pfizer and BioNTech, who has their vaccine candidate going into phase three trials going pretty soon. Jared, tell us about this deal. So the um, announced this morning that the U.S. government has agreed to pay Pfizer and BioNTech almost $2 billion for 100 million doses should their vaccine for COVID-19 prove to work safely, which could happen later this year. That's the essence of it. And that the U.S. government has the option to acquire an additional 500 million doses in the future uh, it remains to be seen if they want to do that so far. But this is also the largest U.S. government funding mechanism so far because they've invested in a number of efforts so far for companies that are working on COVID treatments and COVID uh, vaccines. Some of the latest news that we've heard out of the vaccine candidate from AstraZeneca and Oxford University, we also heard it about Moderna, that they're generally safe and they are producing an immune response. I'm assuming that's the same for this Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine candidate. So all three vaccine candidates from these um, companies and and researchers have shown so far in in small studies to be safe and to generate an immune response. The studies are small or smaller, and, and what happens is that they then move on to a larger phase study where they're tested in thousands of patients. All three of these candidates are slated to be tested in 30,000 people 
in the U.S. with Pfizer and Moderna's scheduled to start this month at some point before the end of the month. And then the Oxford slash AstraZeneca one is supposed to start its large scale study next month. My understanding is they're already starting to manufacture a lot of the vaccines so that once it's proven effective and they get approval, they can start shipping it out to the various countries and everything. There's a big push right now for jockeying, I guess, among nations and the U.S. in terms of securing supplies and securing vaccines, supplies such as vials. And so we're seeing a lot of countries try to sort of get ahead of this. In terms of when they might be uh, approved or authorized to be used by the public, in the U.S., they have something uh, called an emergency use authorization in which the government can authorize a vaccine or a drug approval on a, on a limited basis. And uh, that could come as early as this year at some point. For Pfizer and BioNTech, their vaccine, they had planned to file for such a, an emergency authorization in October. That's their current plan if, if their trial goes as well and, and the vaccine is proven to work and, and safely. As to when the government will then grant that authorization, you know, it could come in days or weeks after it's filed. We saw earlier this year that the antiviral remdesivir from Gilead, after it showed positive results in a study, the U.S. government uh, granted its emergency authorization within several days. And how does this uh, Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine work? It's using a gene-based technology known as messenger RNA, and there's no vaccine that has actually been approved that uses this mRNA technique. So it's an unproven technology that Moderna and Pfizer BioNTech vaccines are, are on, but it, essentially messenger RNA carries instructions from DNA to the body cells to make certain proteins, you know, and then that process goes towards creating protection potentially against the virus. But to your point, an mRNA vaccine has never been approved to prevent any infectious disease. Jared Hopkins, pharma reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Thank you. We could have a compromise. Eventually, we want to get to a place where people aren't being paid more not to work than to work. And that's one of the issues now with the unemployment insurance $600 supplement from the feds. Joining us now is Eric Morath, labor, economics, and policy reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Eric. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about the jobless benefits that a lot of people are getting right now, this extra $600 a week. It's set to expire at the end of the month on July 31st. I've been seeing for administrative reasons some states have said that the last payments will go out this weekend if the program is not extended. I know a lot of people really saw this as a lifeline when the pandemic caused a lot of states to shut down entire industries. And we're seeing that some 25 million Americans are set to lose this extra benefit. Eric, tell us anything you know about updates with this. How is Congress moving along with the plan to either extend this or just let it expire? So Congress is Trying to hash out what appears to be some sort of compromise, the administration has signaled support for some type of extension, perhaps at a lower level, perhaps it phases out, which suggests there might be some ground to compromise. But the Democrats have already said they'd like the full $600 to be extended into next year. 
and other Republicans have called for it to be ended completely. So it kind of remains to be seen if there'll be a middle ground. You're exactly right that given how these payments are made on a weekly basis, there's concern in a number of states that effectively this money ends within a few days rather than a little bit more than a week from now. So there's some urgency for Congress to maybe act even sooner than the deadline, but uh, I've been covering things in Washington long enough. Usually we have to wait to exactly the deadline before we uh, get a compromise. Right, exactly. I've been seeing from some Republicans that they possibly would be open to extending it if it was set at a lower amount, between $200 and $400. And one of the things their reasoning for that is that a lot of people are actually making more money with this added unemployment benefit than they would through their normal jobs. And one of the lines of thinking is that people don't want to come back to work because they're making more money on unemployment. Yeah, that's correct. The University of Chicago did a study and they found a little more than two thirds of those receiving unemployment benefits are receiving more income now than they did at their previous jobs. And how we got to that point is the $600 was intended to boost the average unemployment payment to the median wage for a full-time worker in the U.S. But what we've learned since is that the person laid off wasn't the median wage earner, much more likely to be a lower wage worker, someone that maybe works at a restaurant, a hotel, somewhere in the tourism industry. And those folks often you know, make less than the 23 or $24 an hour that the unemployment benefits pay. So even lowering it to three or 400, there'll be some workers that will still be paid more. I mean, certainly if you're making the minimum wage, which still in many states is 725 an hour, even 200 on top of unemployment benefits could mean that you're making more money than you did before, but uh, certainly smaller share of workers would. What are we hearing about another round of stimulus checks? The last time it was $1,200 individual payments to people. Are we hearing any movement on that front? Yeah. uh, Again, the administration has signaled support for that. And that kind of brings up this debate around, you know, should these payments be targeted? One way to target them is to people who lost their jobs. Another way to target them is to businesses that say they need loans or grants to continue to employ people or you don't target and you say, you know, anyone that makes below a certain income level gets another $1,200 check. Now that puts a lot of stimulus into the economy. So that would probably help support the economic growth. It's kind of found money, but at the same time, you know, it's not necessarily directly helping those that either lost their jobs or their businesses have suffered due to the pandemic. On the employer side, you know, some businesses might need to raise wages to attract workers to either get them out of the, you know, want to get out of unemployment or just even feel like it's worth their safety, you know, if they're scared about getting sick. But that's a difficult thing to do, especially right now with how slow things are going. So, you know, we talked to, for that article, someone who operates a call center in Kentucky, and he said, you know, he's offering $15 an hour for those jobs, just kind of uh, actually a little above the industry standard. And he says, you know, he can't get workers because many of the people that he would hire for this job are making something more than $20 an hour on unemployment benefits. So you can understand how that would be difficult for them. You know, some economists, though, have said, you know, maybe that means you need to raise your wages because it's a different ballgame now. People may not want to report to an office. People may not be able to because they have child care issues or they or someone they know is sick. The challenge is, and this is what the business owner told me, is like, yeah, if I rose, raised everyone's wages, I wouldn't win any contract. So that's kind of the argument that, that you can't operate your business profitably 
if you uh, greatly increased wages. But, you know, I do think there's probably some middle ground. A lot of discussion in, among academia, at least, is that people who are considered essential workers, the idea that essential worker also is the lowest paid and therefore inherently in economic terms, the least valued worker doesn't really make sense to a lot of economists. So that's something I think that businesses will have to reexamine. Which states would be the most affected by these extra benefits expiring? Nevada would be the worst state affected. They have the highest share of workers who are getting these enhanced benefits. Nevada's economy has really been decimated by the coronavirus because so much of it is tied to Las Vegas tourism. The vast majority of people that live in Nevada live in the Las Vegas area, and most are within one or two degrees to the casino and entertainment industry. So, you know, even people like uh, doctors and accountants, you know, they are getting their business by helping people who work at these hotels and, and casinos. So, that area has been really hard hit. And, you know, some of them have been allowed to reopen, but destinations, the Hawaii is another place, they're really seeing their economy hit. Whereas some places like the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee, now they're doing a little bit better because they're getting people who don't want to fly to Hawaii. Maybe they're willing to drive from New York to Tennessee, for example. Eric Marath, labor economics and policy reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Happy to join you as always. I came across Sophia Dara as she was walking along a beach trail. And, you know, she told me that she thought the media was overplaying the coronavirus, but she also showed some level of respect for it as well. Joining us now is Jake Sheridan, reporter for the LA Times. Thanks for joining us, Jake. Thanks for having me. Right now, California has the most confirmed coronavirus infections of any state. They surpassed New York. They were just going through a, a big statewide spike. Uh, it's pushed the case count past. 409,000 at the time of this podcast. And, you know, the numbers are going up so much. So that's definitely going to go up. But wanted to continue to talk about masks and kind of this almost cultural political divide that's been going on with that, particularly in Huntington Beach, California. It's become this symbol of mask resistance. People either just don't want to do it. They just don't believe that coronavirus is actually as bad as it is. It's overhyped things like that. It's an interesting thing that's playing out. Jake, tell us a little bit about your story going to Huntington Beach and seeing what it was like there. I went to Huntington Beach. I was actually reporting on just our, our daily story, trying to get some reactions to rising case rates in Orange County. And so I, I talked with two people who were actually featured in another story. And, and the first one told me when I asked them about the coronavirus, it's a hoax. And then the second one told me that she didn't wear a mask, that she wasn't going to send her rising kindergartner to school in a mask. And so that stuck out to me. And I decided to continue reporting in Huntington Beach to see what the sentiments around coronavirus restrictions and masks were. And what I got a lot of were rejections of coronavirus policy. And that fits with Huntington Beach's recent history as a hotspot for protest against coronavirus restrictions. All of the people I talked to last Thursday showed some level of disagreement with coronavirus restrictions from the government. Huntington Beach in particular has this history, as you said, you know, in May, they had these huge demonstrations when the beaches were closed and local businesses were closed. 
So it's just become this thing where Huntington Beach is a symbol now. And I know there's a lot of more conservative people that live there, but as you've been hearing, uh, a lot of them not happy with the governor and obviously still thinking that a lot of this is a hoax. Definitely a lot of people are upset with Governor Newsom. And I think that's where they're targeting a lot of their kind of frustration with coronavirus restrictions. And also, you know, I think there are a lot of Huntington Beach residents who disagree outright with coronavirus restrictions and really disagree with the state of the pandemic in general. Some people in Huntington Beach do not agree with epidemiologists and different health authorities that are reporting you know, increasing case rates or a certain numbers of infections. Some people really think that this is a hoax or some kind of conspiracy to shut down the economy. Tell me a little bit more about some of the conversations that you had with people, because in reading your story, they were saying things like, if I get it, I get it, or I don't know anybody that has it. And I think for a lot of people, the whole coronavirus, COVID-19 thing doesn't really click until you know somebody that has had it. And while there's rising cases all over the country, we have a, such a huge population, it's still a low percentage of people that have actually gotten it. So I think for a lot of people, it doesn't click to them unless they know somebody that has had it. I'll push back a little bit and say that here in L.A. County, at least, and of course, L.A. County is in Orange County, but, you know, we have similar case rates now. Here in L.A. County, a moderately substantial percentage of Los Angeles County residents have gotten coronavirus. There are hundreds of thousands of people now who have had it here in a county with millions of people. But I think you're right that a lot of people haven't experienced the coronavirus directly. But I'll, I'll kind of characterize a little bit of, of what I heard from each person. So I interviewed Brad Colburn when he was using a metal detector to search for objects in the sand at Huntington Beach. He showed me a silver necklace that he had found that day. And he seemed to believe that the coronavirus was being hyped up by Democrats to target Donald Trump in the upcoming election. He told me, you know, if you don't want to go outside, don't go outside. That should be the policy. And he believed that the numbers were inflated so that things could be intentionally shut down to hurt the economy. Not everyone felt that way. I believe that, you know, it was, a, it was a hard and fast conspiracy theory. I came across Sophia Dar as she was walking along a beach trail. And, you know, she told me that she thought the media was overplaying the coronavirus. But she also showed some level of respect for it as well. She was wearing a mask. She said she was delivering food to the homeless when I came across her. And, and she wouldn't normally wear a mask, but she was doing it then. And she said that she was planning on going back to school maskless. Of course, now Gavin Newsom has issued an order mandating that California schools shut down in the fall. So she probably won't be going back to school at all. I came across Enoch Stepp as he was fishing on the Huntington Beach Pier. And he said, you know, if I get it, I get it, as you mentioned earlier. He also said that he was doing the best he can and trying to follow health regulations. You know, he said he wasn't touching his face. He was washing his hands. He was putting on masks in enclosed room and social distancing. I think a lot of that's more important to him because he is a home health nurse. That being said, he also said he was tired of coronavirus restrictions. He called Gavin Newsom monarch. And he said the government should focus less on restricting people and more on information sharing. Jake Sheridan, reporter at the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.